Welcome to Dungeon Designers Guild. I am your guild master, Stephen Leviathan. You are listening to Season 1, Episode 5 of DDG Pod, where we welcome to the guild hall another game designer from the land of Sweden, who has designed for us an OSR game filled with wretched royalty, terrible omens, apocalyptic prophecies, and of course, heavy metal. In only one year since the first release, this game has captured the imaginations of many in the role-playing community, as well as four Emmy Awards. An art-punk role-playing game filled with haunting writing and gothic imagery, offset by vibrant colors, the game we are about to discuss is a true spectacle to behold, which is difficult to properly convey in an audio format. So, we at DDG Pod have decided the best way to bring you these images is to paint a picture using the game author's own words. The world dies even now. Reality decays, truth becomes dream, and dream truth. Cracks grow in the once stable structures of the past, allowing things misshapen and vile to worm through emerging into day's wane light. The known world closes in, bounded to the west by the massive Bergen Crypt, with its catacombs and ice-caked peaks, and surrounded by the endless sea to the north, south, and east. Many have plowed the wave's furrow in search of new lands. They all return, against their will, alive or dead. So into the sea I am cast For Lord John Mario Will the dead find life What a god as I stand Covered filled with the Today on Dungeon Designers Guild We have encountered a two-headed basilisk, here to either prophesize terrible truths or mutter heinous lies, a winner of four Ennies, and designer of the doom metal nightmare, Merk Borg, Pella Nilsson. Yeah, hi. And how are you tonight, Pella? Uh, yeah, I'm fine. It's uh, nine o'clock in the evening here in Sweden, the best hour during the day for me. <laughs> Excellent. And where is the dark fortress that you are calling in from? I'm in my house in Stockholm, and uh, uh, I've been uh, having a hectic day today, working and also tried to write some Mörkborg things uh, during the working hours. And I had a meeting earlier tonight, and yeah, so it's been a hectic day today. But I'm very alert. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad yeah. to hear that. Um, yeah. Hopefully this... Uh... Uh, will be a, a nice way to end the hectic day. Although I don't know, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. So, are you are you from Stockholm originally? Uh, no, I'm not. Uh, actually, I'm from the south part in in uh, Sweden. It's called Skåne, uh, and it's very close to Denmark. And lots of guys in Skåne want to belong to Denmark. And then my uh, uh, we moved up with my parents and family to northern part of Sweden to a city called Umeå. And I studied there and stuff like that and uh, was living there for maybe 15 years or something like that. 
and then I moved down to Stockholm 17 years ago. So it's been one third in each part of the country, the southern part, the northern part, and now in the middle part of Sweden. Just out of curiosity, where you were originally born, you said a lot of people wanted to belong to Denmark. Yeah. Uh, is that close <laughs> enough that people would commute to Copenhagen? Uh, yeah, it's uh, very close. Uh, I mean, you can take uh, a train or a bus drive over a bridge and you'll travel from a big city called Malmö. Maybe you heard of it. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, you will be in Copenhagen in like 20 minutes or something like that. Okay. And there's... There's people down there that want to be part of Denmark? <laughs> yeah, uh, some people at least. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's in history it belonged to Denmark. And uh, it's some of those guys down there feel more like Danish people than, than Swedish people. I mean, there's been, yeah, it's a lot of history. But I mean, it's just some, not too many guys, but some of them are, traveling to the border between this part and the upper part of Sweden, and they are digging a ditch every year, some few feet every year. So they want to separate uh, this part of Sweden called Skåne from Sweden. So it's a (laughs) funny tradition. (laughs) Of course, it's... some, Some of this is with a glimpse in the eye, but yeah, it's actually true. So it's a little tongue in cheek, but there's people digging a ditch to create a physical, like a geographic border between them and the rest of Sweden. Is yeah, that... That, that's <laughs> that's actually true. It's a true story. I'm not kidding. Yeah. Well, I guess th- that area of the the world did change hands quite a bit over the the centuries. Yeah. Yes. There's uh, been lots of different kind of not countries. It's called something else back, like in the 14th century. And stuff like that but we still have those areas called uh, Götaland it's like uh, Gothland and, and um, the different areas of Sweden that still uh, you know separated from each other it doesn't mean anything any longer it's it's more history but there have been many kings <laughs> and queens in Sweden especially kings and through many periods, there have been several kings at the same time. Uh, so, yeah, it's an interesting history. The Swedes and the Danes kind of took turns taking over Norway, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's true. So there are lots of, uh, you know, stories. We make lots of jokes about the Norwegian people, and the Norwegian people make a lot of jokes about the Swedes. So, yeah, I think Norwegian and Finnish people from Finland are kind of young countries. So they are very proud of their countries in a good way, I think. Not in a racist way. In Like they, they are proud of a con- country in a good way uh. because of all the occupations and stuff like that. So, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. There, there's a lot of history to read about that and uh, interesting stories and, and some fairy tales as well. Definitely. Yes. So you started in the south of Sweden, then you moved to the north of Sweden. Yeah. And that was when you were a little bit older. Is that was that where you first picked up gaming? No, I, I picked up gaming when I was quite young. I, I was maybe 10 years old. Uh, it was back in the mid-80s, like 1985 or 1986 or something like that. So uh, I'm born in the 
1975. I think it's uh, it's it's a very good uh, good year to be born because I I know of a time before internet and computers and lots of TV channels and stuff like that. And uh, I still remember and uh, honor the feeling of being bored. <laughs> so uh, when role-playing games came into the scene in Sweden in the mid-80s, it was, I think the first Swedish game was out 1982. And I bought my first game in 1985, I think, which called Mutant. And uh, it's the same game as Free League Publishing is uh, doing right now, Mutant Year Zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the first game I bought. And that was it was out in 1984. And I, I think I bought it when I was 10 years old in 1985 or something like that. And I still have that box. So uh, that was when it started. And uh, yeah, we played lots of short adventures that were... We did many characters and uh, draw a lot of maps and stuff like that. But we we didn't play that much, actually, because it was, uh, uh, I mean, we were 10 years old and some of the rules, they were a bit complicated for us, maybe. So we made up our own rules and, uh, yeah, talked a lot about the the setting and, and the feeling of the game. and. You know, that kind of stuff and started to make our own adventures and actually start hacking the games when we were kids. Uh, nowadays, I, I hear a lot of daddies in, in my age and they want to make their kids start playing role-playing games. But I think uh, when when I was a kid and in my generation, our parents didn't know anything about this. And I think we started because no parent told us to do it. <laughs> I think it it creates an anti-reaction when the parents want you to start doing something. Okay. And so Mutant, and I think over here in the US that might have been published as uh, Mutant Chronicles yeah. at the time. That's a Swedish original game and the ancestor to Mutant Year Zero, you said? Yeah, but not not maybe Mutant Chronicles, which you maybe played. I guess that would be in the early 90s or something like that. Okay. I could just have uh, that confused. Yeah, this this Mutant game I played is more like Mutant Year Zero uh, with, uh, you know, a post-apocalyptic land. And this was, uh, the setting was uh, Sweden and Scandinavia. So it felt very familiar, and there were, there were you know mutated uh, animals and stuff like that. Uh, Swedish uh, forest animals like uh, the moose or elk. I don't remember uh, what you say in, in in the US. Is it moose? I think our moose in North America is a gigantic deer yeah. or antelope species with the sort of scooped, lobed horns. Uh, what we call elk is a species similar to what you might call a reindeer yeah 
All right, but that was my first game, and also a game called Draker and Demoner. It's in English, that's Dragons and Demons. It's it's not an, a translation of Dungeons and Dragons. It's a basic role playing uh, game. They bought some license from Chaosium mm-hmm. in the early eighties. So that was the first role playing game in Sweden before Mutant. Uh, like like I said, nineteen eighty two, and I bought that game uh, in. 1986 it's like the second version of that game so we played that a lot but you know the the fantasy elements from dungeons and dragons was there like halflings and elves and and uh, warriors fighters and uh, these kind of guys and you said it was d percentile it was based on chaosium system yeah it was percentile system it was a bit complicated in some perspectives, but lots of people, I think they sold like 100,000 copies in Sweden. So that's quite a lot yeah. for this kind of population. And uh, like I was talking about a little bit before, this was something the kids really wanted to do, but they didn't know that <laughs> They wanted to do it, but when when the the role playing games got published here in Sweden, it was like a boom. I think it's called the first golden age of role playing in Sweden. There in the middle of eighties. Nice. The second golden age is right now in Sweden. There are lots of games coming from Sweden that wins lots of prizes, and thousands of people are are playing uh, Swedish role-playing games, uh, or made in Sweden, like uh, Helmgast and their cult role-playing game, and of course all the free league publishing games like uh, Mutant Year Zero and Forbidden Lands, and all those uh, amazing games that they are publishing. Yeah, Yeah. Sweden has become quite prolific. A lot of the games that people are talking about over here in the U.S. are are coming out of Sweden, and that's that's great. That's great for you guys that you're you're producing so much high quality work. So it was also mentioned before by Christian Merstem in the first episode of the show. He told me that Chaosium games were translated into Swedish and sold in Sweden before Dungeons and Dragons got there. Yeah. But did you eventually make your way to Dungeons and Dragons? I didn't play Dungeons and Dragons, and I haven't been playing a lot of Dungeons and Dragons, actually, at all. So I stayed to the to these uh, Swedish games in with, uh, you know, the Swedish text, and there were some few games. It was those games that I've mentioned, and also a game called uh, Fock, and that's Shill. It's called Shill role-playing game I'm, I'm not sure if you've heard of it and then of course cult the first uh, version of cult which now has been helmgast uh, publishing uh, it's a swedish company as well have made a, a fourth edition of cult i think yeah it's the fourth edition so i played those games but uh, i didn't try dungeons and dragons i didn't know about these things back then and uh, the leveling osr kind of thing and experience points and stuff like that i was not familiar with that back then okay yeah but you said that you still have copies of games that you had back in the 80s do you still play mutant or the dragons and demons no i think i i'm like most of these uh, old guys three or four times a year i look into the books and uh, get nostalgic and look at the the old illustrations from when you were a kid. But I don't play those games any longer, actually. 
it's a memory, nostalgic memory, but it it's uh, one important part of my life. So they are very, you know, valuable to me. I want to keep those old games. Lots of people sell them on, you know, like eBay and stuff like that because they don't play the games. But I want to keep my old games because of the nostalgic value. Yeah, I can yeah. understand that. I don't, I don't want to get rid yeah. of anything either. And and you can still no. you can still play them if you wanted. You can still draw inspiration from them. Like they're still valuable yeah. for more than just nostalgia too. So yeah, and they are good to look in. But, uh, like it's how you should not make a role playing game. <laughs> With, uh, you know, uh, it's some rules are not very streamlined and uh, very complicated so it's very good to read the rules and avoid that kind of path to walk when you write a role playing game like the, the Merkborg rules are quite the opposite of the old games from the 80s absolutely and yeah you can look at them and see see the mistakes that they didn't realize that they were making yeah. at the time and improve on of them of course yeah so when you look back at those games i guess i should ask you were you mostly a player mostly a gm a little bit of both no i was um, mostly a gm and it has always been like that i i haven't played that much i want to play a lot more so uh, i tried to go to conventions or yeah i tried because of the uh, yeah pandemic now it's impossible of course but i try to to be player as much as i can because i have been gming too much in my life back in the 80s i was always the gm and never the player so that's something i want to do a lot more i was writing the adventures and doing the hacking and so i guess that's that was a good experience because yeah i was writing my own house rules already as a 10 year old kid and i think that it's a good experience now when I'm trying to make a playable book as a grown-up like Merkborg. I think that's a good experience. Absolutely. One last question about those old games. When you're looking back at yeah. them, do you have any favorite characters that you played in the past or more probably more relevant? Do you have any favorite campaigns that you remember running or anything? Any good stories there that come to mind? No, not any official campaign. We did our own campaign and that was for the fantasy game. I talked about Drakkar and the Mourner. We did a campaign and we played for maybe one and a half year or two years or something like that. Wow. That was a lot of fun. And we decided that, all right, uh, I will not kill any, play- any of your playing characters. So the, the players knew that they w- would not be killed. So, <laughs> but, I mean, we, we were kids. And that lasted for a very long time. And uh, that was awesome. And I've never experienced anything like that again. I mean, I don't remember much details, but yeah, it was everything in that campaign. It was towers with with the evil wizard and there were the inns and drinking beer. We were getting drunk as 10 or 11 year old kids in a fantasy world. And that was awesome. And killing dragons and stuff like that. And uh, I guess it's kind of hard nowadays to get that kind of feeling and, uh, you know, emotional um, 
investment? Yeah, it, nowadays. It's more and more one-shot-ish kind of uh, stuff that happens. You have three hours every second week and we don't have time for any campaign. So yeah, it will not create such uh, epic memories, uh, so to speak. That's true. And uh, you know, that's one thing I see a lot over here, you know, I end up playing my games uh, over like Roll20 and different online platforms. And I'll do a little questionnaire for my players. And one of the questions is, what's something you've never done that you would like to yeah. do? Uh, by far, the most common answer is, you know, a long-term campaign in one way or another. Yeah. You know, play a character from 1 to 20 or whatever, because they just, that that's so rare to get, you know, anything to last more than a few weeks or months. Yeah, that's true. My dream is to play Traveler or some game like that, some uh, space game, and start a campaign now. And when I'm like 65 years old, I'm still playing with my old friends out in space in that same campaign. That would be awesome. But no one right now has the time for for that. But that would be great. You know the Gary Gygax thing, uh, you're in the basement and... uh, playing with the same wizard or magic user for 15 years and be at level 25 or something like that. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. Have you tried playing online at all as far as using Roll20 or Discord, Foundry, any of those platforms? Uh, no, that that's my partner, not my living partner, my business partner, Johan Noor, uh, the, the guy that illustrated and uh, did the layout for Merkborg and the very t- talented guy of the two of us. He's a bit younger than me and he's very digital and uh, social and on the internet everywhere. He's on Twitter and and, uh, chatting a lot on Discord and uh, stuff like that. And he's (laughs) playing online uh, very much. But I'm not that uh, online, so to speak. (laughs) Is it something you want to try or is it something that doesn't appeal to you? It doesn't appeal to me, actually. I like the physical thing about role-playing and interacting with other people and being in the same room and drawing maps together and, uh, you know, the sweat and uh, that kind of feeling, the being physical together. And I get that is role-playing for me. And that, that is because of what I was talking about before. That's the memories for me and how we played role-playing games. So I don't like to play online, actually. But maybe I should try. I was very reluctant to try it. And then when the about a year ago when the pandemic hit, a buddy of mine had been working on me for, you know, we live nowhere near each other anymore. He'd been working on me for years to get online and play with him online. And I, I finally caved and it is different, but I find it to be very enjoyable. I hesitate to say as enjoyable because you're right. Nothing quite really will match the, you know, the memories of playing a character when you were a kid, but it definitely scratches an itch. It definitely gets the job done. I mean, it's opened up a lot of opportunities as far as, you know, playing different games, everything you mentioned traveler. I am sure you could easily find somebody who's playing traveler and would love to have you in their group if you wanted to play it online, you know, but um, yeah, yeah. If it, if it doesn't feel right, that's fine too. I totally understand that. But I found Roll20 and Discord to be a killer combination for getting some gaming in. So, okay. So you said that, uh, you know, when you were younger, you were already hacking games. When did you yes. make the jump to game designer? Uh, maybe 1987. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Uh, oh, wow. I, think, I, I think I 
wrote my first game in 1987 or something like that, when I was 12 years old. And that was, I think it was called like some very generic name, Labyrinth or something like that. Me and a friend, we did the very challenging and boring thing. We did 200 rooms or something like that on three different levels. And we put some stuff in every room, all of these 200 or 250 rooms. There was uh, things going going on in every room and uh, we made a role-playing game out of this. And uh, I mean, that's not very normal for a 12-year-old old kid to do, I think, but <laughs> we did that. And we were very satisfied when that was done. I still have that game, I think. Uh, it's yeah, it's 250 rooms. Wow. I mean, it was it was a huge project, and I, I don't think too many 12-year-old kids nowadays with smartphones and TikTok and stuff like that have the patience to make that thing. <laughs> but we did that. Yeah, you're, you're probably yeah. right about that. I hadn't thought about that, yeah, but yeah. I mentioned. You know, being able to remember when you could be bored. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. So that was my first game. And I think that was very common for lots of people, at least in Sweden. I had a long break from role playing for maybe 15 years or something like that. Like 1994 to 2009 or something like that. I didn't play at all. Uh, It was, uh, I think that was a downtime for lots of things. I mean, uh, musically, bands like Iron Maiden had a really down time in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And then they became a great band again in the... 2000. 2000s, yeah. Brave New World. And, uh, yeah. I love that album. Yeah. When uh, Adrian Smith left Iron Maiden in 1989 or 1988 after that tour, I think after that... I didn't like uh, the first album when after he left uh, No Pray for the Dying. Right. And I didn't like Fear of the Dark album at all. Um, really? And uh, not the, when Bruce Dickinson left Maiden. They made some good songs, but they had the, the wrong uh, uh, singer. Mm-hmm. Maybe the slow songs were okay with that guy. I don't remember. Blaze something. Blaze. Blaze from the band Wolfsbane. I don't know if he had Blaze Bailey. Blaze Bailey. Not the voice for Iron Maiden. No offense to the guy. I'm sure he's a great musician. Not the voice for Iron Maiden at all. Then uh, then Adrian and Bruce came back to Maiden and made that great uh, Brave New World album. And uh, I I mean, the same kind of uh, time (laughs) period was my downtime with role-playing games. I think it was a time when I was uh, doing lots of other stuff. I was traveling a lot and I was uh, trying a lot of stuff and uh, and, uh, role-playing games felt a bit silly for a while, and then it came back to me. Like, uh, lots of stuff came back when I realized that I returned to me, so to speak. Uh, the true... I was uh, returning to the base, <laughs> so, to spe- so to speak. I started to listen to lots of music, which I rejected during the 90s. I mean, I was a metalhead. And then I tried to be an indie head, listening to lots of bands, 
because all my friends did that and I cut my hair and stuff like that. And then I realized after 10 years that that sucks. This this wasn't this, this wasn't very good. And then I, ret- I returned to role-playing games and I returned to the music that was really important to me. And uh, I uh, sold my Blur and Pulp records and <laughs> or throw them in the garbage. I don't remember. And uh, yeah, returned to important music bands and uh, picked up my old uh, games from the 80s. Okay, so that's interesting. Yeah, you know, I took a similar hiatus, maybe six years, and that was because of a move. Uh, you mentioned that you were traveling a lot, and that it does suck. I do feel reticent about it. I should have been more open to trying to find a new group where I was, or or playing online, or something like that. But I'm just glad to be back in the swing of things now. But you, so you said you designed your first game when you were a kid, and then it would have been it was a few years, maybe eight years later. You said you had stopped role playing, and you had some changes going on and then maybe a little over a decade ago you came back to it so how do we get from you deciding this was fun i want to do this again to i'm going to design a game that wins four ennies i didn't decide that i will return to that statement in a few minutes or seconds but i first discovered the osr scene and uh, that was games like labyrinth lord and uh, also some other games, uh, Lamentation of a Flame Princess, Princess and uh, other games, and the new mo- movement. Of, and I also discovered some other games uh, in like 2015 or something like that. And that was a bit more streamlined and minimalistic games like Y-Tech, and you mentioned you talked to Christian, mm-hmm. and I, I have never met him myself because I haven't been to any conventions uh, yet uh, in Sweden, not, not the big conventions, only small conventions, so I haven't met him, but uh, he knows Johan because Johan did the layout for one of his games called the Oktoberland, Oktoberlandet in Sweden, Swedish. So they know each other because Johan did the layout to that game, which Christian wrote. So they have a project together. But I've never met Christian. The only thing I know about Christian is that he's very good at writing role-playing games. And uh, White Tech was a good game. And through that game, I discovered that was before Black Hack, which is inspired by White Tech. White Tech came first. That's the, uh, and then uh, there was Black Hack by the black guy. I don't remember what. what David is it Black. Called? David Black. Yeah, I'm sorry. David Black. I'm sorry, David, that I, I didn't remember your first name. Um, I can cut that. It's fine. Yeah. No, <laughs> don't cut that. It's okay. <laughs> Don't cut any, anything. This is the uh, raw material or the law listeners written. <laughs> but that game was important, not mechanically, but because I discovered the streamlined kind of writing that made the game quite easy to play. And that was very important for the games that are later that that I started to create. And other games was, uh, yeah, like I mentioned, David Black's Blackhack. 
that was also a very important game because of the streamlining. There are not rules-wise, there are not much left in Merkborg compared to any of those two games, but it was more like the streamlined idea that was important, not any of the rules. A friend of mine is Chris McDowell, and he did the game uh, Into the Odd, and that was even more important for the Merkborg, the birth <laughs> uh, of Merkborg. That was one important game that really inspired me when I did the rules for Merkborg. Yeah, so where did the idea for uh, Merkborg begin then? The idea was, I, took, uh, I was inspired by those games that I was talking about now, and then I was inspired by Dungeons and Dragons uh, from the 70s, the early days, not the 5th edition or any of the early editions, but the original edition from 1974, and maybe the second edition, and uh, I was looking at the, when I wrote Merkborg, I wanted to make it even lots, lot more, even more streamlined. And it was very important to not use the same system like the games I mentioned. And that's also one reason why they, they were very important, because I didn't want to uh, write a roll under equal or under system. Like you have this ability, strength, and you have 14 and you roll a die and d20 and want to roll under that and you succeed the save. So I wanted to make a mix somehow. You still roll the 3d6 and that roll is important because that gives you a modification. And the modification is everything you use more or less in the zero edition of Dungeons and Dragons. That modification determines lots of stuff. I don't think I need to go into detail there. And I wanted to boil down the abilities because I think I didn't want six abilities because that was too many abilities. So I wanted to cut that amount of abilities down and I ended up with four abilities, like three physical abilities and one mental ability, so to speak. It's strength, agility, presence, and that is a combination of intelligence and wisdom from (coughs) the original uh, game and what's left, toughness. And that is constitution and charisma didn't feel that important to me because I mean, if the the player role play good enough, he or she doesn't have to roll for if that is successful or not. It should be, you know, something that if you do that good, you should succeed. And if you if you just say, I try to convince him that I am not lying or something like that, that's bad role playing, then you fail. So you don't need a role for that. So I I cut out the charisma ability. And so it's more or less in, intelligence and wisdom, those combined are presence. And the other three are uh, constitution, strength and dexterity, of course. The modification is, it's like uh, any OSR games, but the... The value you roll when you roll three die six is not important. It's just the modifications that are important. And then the GM decides on a difficulty rating, which normally is 12, because if you have plus one in that ability, 
it's 50% possibility that you succeed. And that feels okay with plus one, not zero, because that's, if you have zero in modification, it's a little bit below average in my mind. I don't remember the percentage, but I think it's like 44 or 45 or some percent success rate. But so plus one is 50% and it's quite easy to get better in your abilities in Merkborg uh, when you level. So it's a bit boring if you are at 50% when you have zero in one ability because when you get better, you roll a die six. And if it's not a one, if it's between two and six, you raise that ability to plus one. And if you have plus one and roll and d6, you raise that ability if it's between two and six. So it's quite easy to get plus two plus three is also quite easy. So that's the reason why I settled on plus one is 50%. And then for every step, you have quite a good odds on getting a success. So with these abilities, just to clarify, we're still rolling a d20, right? So when you say we have to beat a 12, that's a roll of a d20 plus or yeah. minus the ability score. Yeah, it's it's the normal it's the normal difficulty rate. If you don't you don't want to think or you it's a normal situation, it's 12. Okay. So we have the the four ability scores and uh, some things we can kind of infer agility is, you know, similar to dexterity and things like that. And like in D&D, you would use agility for your defense, like you would use dexterity for your AC in D&D. Yes. And so they, they kind of line up their strength uh, you would use for attacking physically. Agility used for attacking ranged, right? No presence is uh, ranged. That's uh, a bit different from the normal kind of way. And that was a decision I made because I, f- I was thinking about the situation. And I, I felt like dexterity in ranged combat. I mean, if you have a, a bow and you aim at someone. It's not about dexterity. It was more like presence in Merkborg terms, or like being patient, focused, and stuff like that. That was more important than how much dexterity you had. So the ranged attack is presence. It's about focus and being calm and stuff like that. And that felt natural. And I haven't heard much complain about that. Sure. So presence would also cover, you know, your concentration skills, those sorts of things. That makes sense. Yeah. And that is aiming and stuff like that. So, yeah, I put range combat under the uh, presence stat. Okay. And presence also covers magic usage, right? Yeah, that's that's true. I felt that if you look at those abilities... I mean, if you if you have a role-playing game and you, you roll three dice six for every ability and you get the chance to swap some of the results, there's always uh, one ability that uh, gets, uh, you know, the bad roll. And that is uh, often charisma or like wisdom and intelligence and stuff like that. So I wanted to make presence more important so that the combined feeling that presence was uh, very important for range combat is also i didn't want any stats to be the less important ability right we would call that the dump stat yeah the dump stat yeah that was the word i was looking for but (laughs) 
uh, yeah, I'm getting tired, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, no problem. Yeah, it's Vedamstedt. Yeah, uh, maybe I think Vedamstedt in Merkborg as of now is which I need to use a lot more and uh, maybe other people. I mean, there are lots, hundreds of things coming out from other people that have made content for the game. I think toughness is the ability to go for. It's Vedamstedt. Of Merkborg right now, and it's—I mean—it's still only four four abilities. It's still the dump stat, and I, I don't like that. So I I need to use that ability to make that important in a lot more of situations in the things that I will write in the future, and I I hope other people will make that ability more important in the future as well. Uh, strength and agility is always important and in Merkborg uh, presence is important because of range combat and stuff like that. That's very important, but toughness get a little bit uh, dumb. <laughs> that's speak. interesting because you think, yeah. you know, that that's equivalent to constitution. That's where your health is coming from. Do you think it's because people don't mind their Merkborg characters dying because they can just roll up another one real quick? Or what do you think is causing that? Uh, I think it's because of there are not many situations in adventures that I've seen and there are not much adventures that I have written that the toughness gets in the highlight, so to speak. There needed to be more poisons and there need to be more bad weather and stuff like that. So you get the chance to use that ability a lot more and create a feeling in the game group that that ability is very important to raise and have a good um, modification on. Sure. Well, I always think it's important because I don't, I don't want to die. But, you know, there are so, there are people out there that enjoy character death, I guess. Yes. But you're right. I agree. More poisons. Let's say. <laughs> yes. But I, I also have to mention one thing there, but because... When you say a character dies and it's very easy to roll up a new character, I think if you compare Merkborg to other OSR games, like um, lots of people are mentioning that, oh, I only have one hit point or two hit points in Merkborg and my character, it's very easy to die. I mean, it's the same in all OSR games. Uh, a wizard have a, wi- uh, a magic user. In uh, Dungeons and Dragons, start with one d4 hit points, and if you compare that to optional class like uh, esoteric hermit or something like that, it's about the same. Maybe there's a possibility in Merkborg. I haven't checked that statistically, but but maybe I think you get more hit points in Merkborg compared to the OSR clones. So. I don't think, I actually don't think Mugborg is more deadly than many other games. And I wouldn't say that it's it's more deadly. I just think that no. there's definitely OSR players out there that uh, they don't, you know, they're playing to see how many characters they can kill in an evening. You know, that's, there, there are people who like to play that way. And I, I definitely see a tendency yeah. for that in the OSR community. That's not my preferred way to play. Oh, I want to be able to take damage. I want to have a decent amount of hit points. Yeah. But then again, it's, it's, uh, if you play with your character and survives like in any other OSR game and you level up, you get probably better in lots of abilities and you will have more hit points for certain when you level up. So yeah, I think lots of people are asking if 
Mark Borg is possible to play in a, like a campaign because they have played other OSR games in campaign mode. And I, I don't understand the difference there, actually, because Mark Borg is very possible to play in a campaign mode, especially if you compare to other OSR games. It's no difference, I think. Yeah, I mean, I guess where that's probably coming from is people talk about, you know, various OSR games having high lethality. And you look at something like Mark Borg and the aesthetic of it is, you know, yes. so gruesome that I think it's just assumed that lots of people are, are going to. I mean, you start out the book saying that you can name your character if you want, but it's not going to save you. <laughs> no, that's <laughs> right. But that, that is the savior thing. It's not going to save you thing. It's, your, it's not only about your character and that you have low hit points and, and stuff like that. It's because of the, you know, the countdown of the world going to shit. Uh, that uh, mechanic as well going on in the background so yeah and I agree with you with the aesthetic and stuff like that and uh, also the yeah when you realize that you can roll up a new character if you use the book you can do that in two minutes or if you use the digital generator you can do that in a second so yeah did you guys make that generator because that's a great little tool there yeah 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 we have a, a friend from the West Coast in Sweden. He's called Carl, and he is very good at uh, doing this kind of uh, generators. So we got in contact with him, and I, he, I want to mention that he's written a lot of stuff also in the territory scene and the forthcoming heretic scene. He's made a lot some classes, and you can find them on our website as well. And some adventures, but he's very good at uh, doing the digital generators. And um, the first generator was the class generator, and that is uh, he throw in all the words of uh, in the book into a generator, so you can make a class. Uh, also, if I remember right, you can check a box and uh, go for the non-official classes if you want. And he also made the digital dungeon generator. Yeah, I did that. I wrote the entries, most of them. That was a pain in the ass, I need to mention. <laughs> but uh, the, 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 there are like eight or ten different, uh, you know, titles. And like the entry, the features in the rooms and stuff like that. And is the dungeon active or not and stuff like that. So it was like 500 different entries there, which I wrote in an Excel document. And uh, then he uh, made a digital generator out of that. That was a stretch goal for territory scene, if I remember correctly. We'll have to get a, a link to those in our, our show notes so people can go check them out. Yeah, Both of the generators that I mentioned is on the website of merkborg.com. They are both because uh, I didn't do them digitally. I can say that they are awesome. They are really fantastic. And uh, I mean, you can create an adventure. You can click on the room titles if you want to have eight rooms instead of four rooms. And create a lot more of more stuff for your adventure, so you can make a like twenty room dungeon and a really 
great um, dungeons with that generator and, and start playing in five minutes with a class generator. It's fantastic with the, those um, digital generators. I'm really happy about them. And easy to start, easy to get thing is one of the success uh, things about Merkborg, I think. It's very streamlined and it, you don't have to read uh, 350 pages of rules to start playing it. You can start playing in 20 minutes. If you have never read anything about Mark Borg, you can start playing in 20 minutes. That was, of course, also one of my goals when I did this game. It was quick playability. Uh, yeah, I did want to talk to you a little bit about the classes here because they're somewhat... I mean, they, they, there are some analogs here to the traditional classes that you would see in like, yeah. D&D. I mean, I, like Gutterborn Scum, I think is kind of a rogue and Esoteric yeah. Hermit would be kind of a wizard. I'm not sure about Wretched Royalty, but that's cool. That's what I played as when I played this. Heretical Priest, I guess would be kind of a cleric, a cult herbalist or herb master. That's sorry, right. cult herb master. That would kind of, I mean, that's like an apothecary. I don't know if there's a direct analog there. Yeah, that's right. And, and I'm not sure about Fanged Deserter and where that one came from. It's a fighter in Merpog. Just a very, very interesting and specific way to describe the fighter. Yeah. <laughs> a, a fanged yeah, deserter. Yeah, the things you said is completely correct, and but uh, a fang starter is the fighter. And then I made two extra classes, the, the royalty, retro royalty and the occult herbmaster, because I really wanted to have a class that was uh, running around with, uh, you know, a, a laboratory, like in a wagon, <laughs> and uh, making lots of uh, strange uh, mixtures out of herbs and herbs and poisons and stuff like that. So it ended up with this six classes so that is it and after the rulebook was done because i wanted to uh, have six classes so you could roll a, a d6 if you wanted to randomize which class you were playing with i really wanted to make this uh, socrates kind of class a little bit a philosopher which i wanted to include in the, the core book but like I said, I wanted you to be able to roll a d6 to get the, your class. So that seventh class uh, ended up in the territory scene for Lone Philosopher. And with that guy, you also got 10 more uh, scrolls uh, or the tablets that they have, to, uh, 10 more uh, scrolls to pick from. So not only the 20 scrolls from the core book. As far as using magic, I mean, magic is based on whether or not you have scrolls to perform it, right? Yeah, it's, I mean, it felt strange. I wanted the magic to be like an item. I mean, if a magic user reads from a book and he can make magic happen, in Merkborg I wanted, if you get, if you find this text... Uh, this uh, scripture with magic words and you are able to read it then you can make magic happen so magic is more like like an item and if you want to have that item you can use it at your own risk uh, yeah if you find that item you can use magic uh, anyone can use it and some classes have from the start at least really bad presence modifiers so it's not a good call to use them or read from the from them 
So yeah, that was something that I, I didn't like from the, the old games, that like the fighter can't use magic. Uh, so I wanted to make something new out of that. I think that's nothing new for Merkborg. I think there are other games that have done that before. So it's nothing new. Sure. Was there a, if, if I recall correctly, somewhere in the book, and I was just looking for it, isn't there a, a minimum presence score you need to be able to use a scroll? Yeah, that, yeah that's right. So if you have that uh, minimum score, it's not possible to use the scrolls. But I mean, if you raise that ability, you can start using them. And uh, yeah, but if you have a very low presence, it's very risky to use scrolls as well. So it's a good idea to start with uh, scrolls when you have maybe plus one or plus two in presence, at least. And if you're a... A class that starts with a scroll, it limits how much armor you can have, right? That kind of balances out the magic user and martial class mechanics, yeah. right? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And how, so the armor, as far as as far as far in combat with armor, the armor is one of the mechanics that I liked most when I was playing this. Can you can you describe how the, uh, the damage mechanic and the armor mechanics work briefly? Uh, yes. I, I think uh, armor is one of the more fiddly rules in Markborg because in a fight uh, you need to check if you hit or if you get it and then after that you need to roll another die to check if uh, how much uh, damage that your armor uh, absorb so that's a little bit fiddly i think uh, it's it's nice that you say that the, one of the rules that you like the most in Merkborg because it's also one of the most complicated rules <laughs> uh, in the game. The minus die something, die 2, die 4, die 6 is the common reduce you get. And uh, that's an abstraction. I didn't want the, the armor to be static, and that is maybe what you like. I wanted it to be flex, you know, it can vary, because that's the die thing there. Using the die is one abstraction for where did the weapon hit, and how hard did it hit, mm-hmm. and it's not something static. That can be different from hit to hit, so sometimes it's only one, or sometimes it's four. It's not something static, and it's uh, that was important for me when I, I did that armor rule, and that's maybe there could have been some better solution for that, but that was the best I could think of. Yeah, I think it's genius. I mean, it's it, I think it's a lot of fun, first off, because the, the GM is not really rolling that many dice. That The GM will say... A troll is about to attack you, and the player will roll an agility roll to see if they're hurt or not. And then if they are hurt, yeah, the troll gets to roll usually a d6 or whatever for an attack. Usually d6, could be something else. And you're rolling another die to see how much you subtract from that. What it creates, it's a relatively simple way to create a lot of sophistication in combat. And that's what I appreciate about it. Yeah. That's something I wanted to ask you about specifically, because that's not something that you're borrowing from anywhere else. That's something that you you came up with on your own. Uh, Yeah, more or less. But I think other games, I think uh, like the Black Hack by David Black, I think he also has that system. If I remember correctly, that all rolling of the dice are player-faced. 
I think. You roll for strength if you want to hit someone and you roll for strength to check if you get hit and, uh, in, in uh, melee. And in ranged combat, you do the same thing for dexterity. So, yeah, that was your question. If uh, the, the player faced... Lots of player-faced uh, rolling on the die. To be more specific, it's the, the giving yep. armor its own like armor die. I think that's very yeah, clever. Maybe, yeah, that that uh, that might be quite unique for Merkborg, I think. I've checked a lot of games, and I haven't seen it anywhere, actually. Uh, no, it, it's, it has always been a static, you know, armor class rating or absorbing one or two damage points or something something like that i think that that might be unique there are probably some game that use it but i didn't get inspiration from any game i haven't seen any game myself right it's hard to come across things that are you know truly unique somebody's somebody's thought of something similar in the past maybe somewhere but i have not encountered this anywhere else in in game design and that was something i i was really curious about was if that was just original to murkborg or if that was something that uh, you were borrowing from elsewhere so no, in, in my head, it's unique. I, <laughs> uh, I, I haven't, um, I didn't steal it from any game because I haven't, like I said, encountered any games that use that mechanic. So that's one unique thing for Macborg. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah. and then obviously, whatever is left over after that is the amount of damage you would take to your, to your yes. points, right? Yes, that's right. That's your damage. I should maybe mention that the GM can roll. Some some die. Uh, of course, if you want the mo- the creature or monster, if you want to check if if you want to sneak f- pass by a, a monster, the GM can roll a, a d20 and compare that to the difficulty rating 12 or. If that kind of creature has very good hearing, maybe it's a difficult rating 10. That's up to the GM. So he he or she can make uh, some rolling for the monsters as well. But in a combat, there are not any GM die rolling, if I remember correctly. No, there is not. I want the players to have control over that combat situation and also remove lots of responsibility from the GM. From you know, it's very easy to hide behind a, a screen and roll a lot of dice and lose focus on the adventure. And one a design aim for Merkborg was that the GM can drop a lot of dice to the players and focus on the story. So it's very story-based, this game, not only because it's rules light, but also because of this, that, yeah, lots of the rolling are done by, like 90% of the rolling are done by the players. Right. So in the situation you mentioned a little while ago where you're sneaking past a monster, uh, would that be the player's agility against the monster's presence? Is that how you'd rule on that? or That's a little bit how you want to play. Maybe that was a bad example because there you should use, uh, the player should roll for agility against the uh, difficult rating. So if the monster have mm. good hearing or are very alert or something like that, maybe you should raise it to DR 14 or 16 or something like that. The rolling for monsters are maybe more like if, 
the player make them drink a poison that's out of the player's control control after that so maybe then the gm rolls for some kind of toughness test for the monster if the monster die or something like that so the monster roll against the strength of a poison like dr14 or dr16 so uh, yeah the sneak past was a, a bad example because yeah uh, so it's more like uh, out of situation things for the monster where the player's abilities cannot influence the situation so to speak okay and so a lot of the mechanics in, in Merkborg uh, would be familiar to the average role player and we've gone over a lot of the ones that i think are are unique are there any any mechanics that we haven't mentioned that stand out to you as as unique or distinct or that you're particularly proud of in the game yeah uh, uh, one thing is of course the necrobell calendar the countdown when the world ends you decide within your group how long you want the world to last. You can roll a D2 or you can roll a die 20 or a D100 where you decide that. And on a one, one misery occurs. And then you roll a D66 and check the, the miseries on that page, which is written like a, a psalm in a Bible. So that mechanic is both unique, I think, and something that I'm very proud of. It certainly adds something to the game. Can you clarify what a D66 is? The D66, what? Yes. How does one roll a D66? Is that 2D6 that they're rolling, or how how does that work? Yes, yes. Uh, You roll 2D6. The first die is uh, which psalm should you read from? There are six psalms, uh, not the seventh of the seventh, which is the last psalm in that uh, calendar. So... The first die indicates which psalm on that page you should go to. And the other die decides which verse you should read from, which is the misery. So uh, the D- D66, and that's uh, that's not something unique for Mark Borg. Free League publishing in with all their games and lots of other games and lots of other publishers use the D66. So uh, you roll two six-sided dice to check if it's it's something between 11 and 16 and then 21 26 and so on so that that determines which misery that occurs in the calendar of necrobal on that spread and that spread is maybe the most important thing (laughs) in murkborg i think right that kind of leads into just the setting in general which it does have a specific setting so if you would could you describe for us the setting and how you arrived at it yeah those places that are described and locations was very important for me to include in the game. I needed to mention that we haven't talked about the history, how we started to write Mark Borg. This is not my first published game, uh, actually. And me and Johan Noor, the fantastically talented layout and illustration guy for Mark Borg. And yeah, some dead people helped him as well sometimes. But this is not our first game. We have made another role-playing game as well which is only in Swedish as of now it's a horror game I can talk about that later maybe if we have the time but uh, I really want to get that published in English as well let's see the setting is very important to me and I I really want
wanted all those places to be a part of Merkborg. I didn't have... The setting was something that came into the game and the book, the core book, very late. I didn't want to have it there in the first place. But then Johan asked, man, we need a, a setting. <laughs> for this game and I said uh, I don't know and then they said yeah we need a setting and I said okay I write the setting and I wrote the setting in one day on a Friday I didn't have many meetings uh, during in my real job <laughs> and uh, I was sitting drinking coffee at the cafe and uh, I wrote the setting the skeleton of the setting so to speak uh, all the locations that was important to me I wanted to have a land of ruins and temples and that is a grift I wanted to have an Iceland in the north and that Kergus and the Alliance city with the high spires and yeah the black spires and evil vampire like countess there which is of course like many have noticed my Bathory kind of lady both the band and the lady from some hundred years ago Erzibet Bathory she is the countess there very important and I wanted a deep forest I wanted a churchyard, Sarakash. I wanted Baroque, Fat King, eating uh, chicken wings, being really kind of a psychopath. And uh, I wanted a valley with undead and a mysterious sea and the, you know, the mountains, like in all kind of fantasy settings, the mystery mountains and something on the other side that's not very described like no one no one knows where's uh, west of Bergen Crypt usually it's the north of the mountains in most fantasy settings or the east of the mountains that are mystical in Merkborg it's the west side that is a bit mystical that was very important for me and I made that skeleton on one day and then I filled in the details on the second day. So I wrote the setting in two days. That really was a good call from Johan to persuade me to write that setting because the book would have been shit without it. So I did that. And also it's important to mention that in lots of the optional tables and the random tables and the equipment and the miseries in the Necrobel calendar, there are feelings and uh, seeds that also add to the Mörkborg feeling. And it's quite, the setting is not long. It's not like in the normal core book where you have a campaign book or something like that with of 200 pages of uh, walls of text to read. This is like 10 pages long and not much text on every page. It's lots of illustrations and it's vaguely described. And mm-hmm. I think that's one succeed thing about Merkborg also. Like Chris McDowell's Into the Odd game, the vaguely described thing. So you have to fill out the blanks yourself. It sparks some kind of imagination in you that you you want to fill out this blank. You want to write an adventure about that thing, that sentence of a warm earth that is vibrating, that is not described in detail and there is no random table about what is coming out of that ground. It's very vague. So... You want to make an adventure of that and you want to know about that 
and Perle and Johan will not provide that. So I fucking write that myself. And I think that's the reason why there are, after one year, there are more than 100 things, contents. It might be an adventure, or it might be a class, or a table, random table or something, that has been produced by people reading the book. I mean, there's one guy, and I don't remember his name, and I'm so sorry, but he has compiled all the things that people have written for Merkborg. I think it's 120 items things now in that document it's on each eo and it's uh, on in the scene coming in the scenes and it's uh, free stuff and other things like that and it's coming from all these people that want to fill in the blanks in the setting and that was very important for me to not i'm not sure how you use that saying in english but i didn't want to write things on the nose on people that this is like that and if you do that this is like that and uh, she was born in the year of nothing like that it it was intentionally and that was very important for me and it's not a designer mistake or something like that it's very important for me that it was vaguely described because i wanted to spark the imagination of the reader's mind so that you could get into the setting in 10 minutes, you can create a character in two minutes, and you can start playing some adventure in 50 minutes. That was a very important design goal for me, because I I haven't seen that in any other game, except for maybe Into the Odd by Chris before. And that was extremely important for me. And I also wanted to bring on that Nordic harsh kind of feeling in the book. It was translated into English, but I think that was very well kept, that feeling, because of the I think so. great work. Yeah, Patrick Stewart, the, that's a guy I want to talk to. I think we are a bit similar. We are both, uh, we look the same and <laughs> feel the same in many ways. He did a very good job on making the English version vibrant and still keep the Nordic Nordic feeling that I was writing very harsh Nordic kind of things in Swedish. The Swedish book and the English book, they are very different, but still they are the same, so to speak. I think that definitely that tone definitely comes across. Yeah, the sort of Nordic horror and the the apocalyptic tone. And and real quick, you had mentioned was it? Do you say Patrick Stewart? Is that the name of the original translator into English? Or uh, no, the thing how we worked, uh, the process was this: I wrote the Swedish stuff. And we had a lot of tables in the core book. So sometimes Johan helped me out with a D100 table of Adventure Sparks. I said, oh, fuck, I can't take another table. <laughs> and then, he, then, then, he, then we did that. Maybe we did that together a little bit like that. Maybe so on this, you know, the many entries tables, both me and Johan, but on the, in the short tables and all the texts are done by me. So that's how we worked. And I, and, I see uh, that here in the in the book, right, uh, English Writing and Creative Consult- Consultation, Patrick Stewart, and that's S-T-U-A-R-T, not the, not the actor. <laughs> 
Um, no, no, Chris. Yeah, so. that's that's it. Uh, then, then Johan, who also did the um, yeah Johan Or, he translated this into Swinglish, <laughs> and uh, and then we sent the text to Patrick, and he put flavor into the English text and made it great. And sometimes, because I'm a man of few words and. Patrick is a man of many words, and so sometimes we maybe cut the text a little bit. And sometimes I was inspired by Patrick's, what he wrote. So I took that and translated it back into Swedish. So that because of I was inspired by him to make something better, and we didn't want the Swedish and English version to be very different. So it was that that's how we worked, and it's the same thing with the scenes, the territory scene we're working on. I've done a lot of things in both territory and the heretic scene, which is coming out in late summer. I've done a lot of things there. Johan has translated it and I have translated it a little bit. And then we have hired uh, editors, English-speaking editors. And then we get the text back from them. And I change some things in the Swedish versions because it's really good, the thing that come back from them. So that's the process all the time. For me, it's yeah, it's it's a lot of work because I write the things and then someone translates it and I get some a text coming back to me and I need to translate it back the things I've already written so I need to work two times so to speak on all the texts that I've written from the start well the end result in, in English I don't know how it reads in Swedish but it, it is it, it's incredible I mean it has that epic and apocalyptic and haunting sort of feel I think the gothic sort of nature of it that I believe you're going for definitely comes across yeah. was that tone always the intention was the whole apocalyptic aspect to it always going to be part of it even before the setting was created yeah it, it was more or less it was uh, maybe it started like I think the beginning point was you have your character and you have this femur weapon and you're worth nothing. <laughs> Maybe that was the starting idea. And if you die, it's very easy to create a new character. Then we wanted to develop that a little bit because it felt maybe a bit too shallow or something like that. So then the some other stuff came in, the setting and stuff like that. But yeah, that was an intentional idea, actually. Yeah, that's right. And then you you constructed the setting out of uh, kind of bits and pieces. It's yes. like you said, it's, it's implied in different types of texts and things things like that throughout the first few pages of, of the book. Yeah, I need to mention one thing there. I did make up some things because I wanted to make them important for me, like a, a very important thing to me. And that was intentional because when we I did Merkborg, I was hoping a new one as well. It was more negative when I was regarding people playing the game. I was hoping for like 250 people around the world playing this. Johan was more negative. But I was planting a lot of personal seeds in the game because however this thing would become, I wanted it to be personal and not like a job or something like that. Uh, so uh, like Antelia, she's the countess in Kergus, 
the Bathory Lady. That is the name of the lady that owned my summer place. You know, it was not a, not just a cottage. It was like a farm when I was a kid. It's in, in a part of um, Sweden that's called Småland. That's uh, south of Stockholm, but north of the Skåne that want to belong to Denmark thing. That was uh, a place where I was on a lot of holidays when I was a kid. And the lady that owned that farm 120 years ago, her name was Antelia. So I took her name and I have a picture of her, a photograph from the 1920s, 1920 or something like that. She was born in the 19th century and died maybe 1940 or something like that. But she, her name was Antelia. So I took that name into Merkborg and made her a character in, in the setting. And with that, I made a personal connection to this game. So however much business this will become, there is all, always a personal thing. And that is just one of the stories. There are many other seeds that are important to me. And those kind of uh, deliberate actions will make Merkborg personal to me. And as a reminder, however successful any Kickstarter or how many thousands of copies we sell and how many Ennis we win, there is always always this uh, very personal bond to the text and the book. And so that's... uh, I don't think I've told about this this, uh, story before in any other interview, but uh, that is very important and deliberate because the second Merkborg turns into business, uh, both me and Johan will get the fuck out of the book. That's that's for sure. (laughs) You'll just turn it over to other hands and call it a day? Is that the idea or...? Uh, no, but uh, we uh, we have our jobs and right. uh, li- like uh, daytime jobs, mm-hmm. and this is uh, Markborg is supposed to be a-, a project, a hobby that's only fun. There are some bits with Markborg that is not fun right now, but that's also the thing. It was successful in some perspectives, so that's the price we have to pay, and and we accept that. And it's 100% okay, and we are extremely grateful about that. But it's very important for us that this is something that is free, fun, and something that, you know, it's uh, burning inspiration. It's uh, not business. And uh, (laughs) uh, so lots of people ask us how you must be a big company or some, some strange uh, question, but we we I mean we are not uh, a company. We are, we are two guys making this book, and uh, and I'm not kidding, and I'm not trying to sound uh, politically correct, but we don't uh, care about money, and uh, there's not much money in role playing business, at least not for us. And yeah, I feel a bit like. Fenris in Dark Throne, he's working delivering mail still. And he 
has that professional job because dark phone should never be business. And I think he said I could be a rich bitch if I wanted to. <laughs> but he doesn't want to be a rich bitch because dark phone is uh, something that is more important than a business. It's not a business. It's a, you know, it's a life call. And I think it's the same for me, Johan, with Mark Borg. We could have been rich bitches <laughs> if we <laughs> said yes to everything. But Mark Borg is something else. It's a lifestyle, so to speak. Well, that, it's a personal passion and uh, you hid little Easter eggs that are very personal to you throughout it. Out of curiosity, did you have a, a pet two-headed basilisk or anything when you were growing up? Anything like that? or? <laughs> Yeah, I chopped all my uh, dolls into with an axe into two heads. No, no, uh, uh, I didn't have uh, any two-headed basilisks as a kid. I think that's uh, the the two-headed basilisks was. I was a little bit inspired by the cult role-playing game. I'm I'm not sure if you familiar with that I, I know it exists i've never played it but i would like no, to no but it's in that game the reality is an illusion it's like yeah the matrix movies some people see through the illusion and the two-headed basilisks are a little bit inspired by that game but not only that but it's a bit inspired by that by that setting and that the four heads are the you know the corners stones of a life with the lies and truth and denial and stuff like that so that i created the two-headed basilisks as a four cornerstones of life it wasn't enough with one head with two wills like truth and lies or light and darkness or plus or minus or positive or negative or stuff like that i needed four pillars or milestones or whatever you can call it like a table I did two heads with four eyes that could look in different directions, not what, not just one direction, like we as humans can look at left and right or forward or turn our head backwards. I wanted it to be two heads looking in various directions and created the cornerstones of the minds of the four heads uh, and the four important cornerstones or legs on the table uh, of life, lies, truth, and uh, oh shit, I don't remember the other two heads. <laughs> uh, truth, lies, what was. <laughs> anyway, That's yes. Uh, huh? Denial, yes. I just and had them here. Something so else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, it's fine. Um, you know, no one expects you to memorize your game, so we got. Um... Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm, there are lots of lots of people that know my game, know our game. Denial much and deception, better. right? Or is deception lies? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, deception, denial, and then we have truth, the damn truth, and lies. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it all, it all contributes to, like you said, a, a, a setting that is, you know, it's 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 vague, but it's there, and it's there's so many little pieces to just sink your teeth into. It's it's really that, that was a, a a great suggestion by Johan, and and uh, well yeah. executed on your part for sure. I'm sorry, it's uh, truth and envy and denial and deception, and that's the four cornerstones. 
I knew them in Swedish, but I didn't remember the, the words in English. But that was with the, the four heads. What are they in Swedish, out of curiosity? It's the same. It's, it's you know, it's, should I say them in Swedish? Do you want me to say them in Swedish? I, I would like to hear them in Swedish, yeah. That was the... <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, yeah. Uh, hon, that's she. She is hon. But uh, huvud. And that is Lucy. The ark, ark, the lies, the, the head of lies. And then we have avensjuka och bitter. Bitter is bitter. So that's quite similar in English. Right, that'd be a kind of The hands huvud och det är gorg, bitter avensjuk. Och sen har the Verhu, the uh, head of the truth, which Gorg is jealous about. And that is Sanningen, the Verbannade Sanningen, the It's the truth. That's the, the male spawn that came out of her. And uh, uh, the Gorg is bitter and envious, and on Verhu, the twin head, that is. Uh, you know, the damn truth and bragging about the truth. Uh, so now you heard it in Swedish. Thank you. I love Germanic languages and I, you know, uh, but I don't have a good grasp on the Scandinavian languages, but I still love to hear them. So. <laughs> yeah. maybe, maybe I should record the setting in Swedish and maybe publish it, the Swedish recorded setting. I can read the Swedish text. I think many people would appreciate that hearing the Swedish tones and words and we can have a like a vocabulary uh, translation in the back <laughs> as a uh, appendix or something yeah or you could you go back and forth if it was an audio recording you go back and forth and do uh, you know, a chunk in Swedish and then the same chunk in English so people can compare as well that would be kind of cool yeah but all right well yeah this has been this has been wonderful is there anything that we didn't discuss about the game that you also wanted to be sure to mention any any questions that we didn't go over no i just as always i want to mention that the community of the Merkborg community is amazing and i'm very happy that uh, lots of people are creating stuff for Merkborg, and uh, there are so many things published and i mean we did that third party license which we released four months ago or something like that and there has been maybe 10 kickstarters or something like that out of the third party license Uh, they have all been very successful and we are uh, we are very happy about uh, uh, the community and the greatest design goal was that uh, like I mentioned, to keep things vague so that people will start to make things up on their own uh, was successful. And I want to say thank you a lot to all the people that enjoys the game and play the game. A photograph of guys playing the game is so much more important than any gold medal in the Anis. Uh, it's uh, very important. And both me and Johan are very happy about this. And we get less distressed because of this, because 
lots of people are making better things than we do and <laughs> and uh, it's also a great uh, compliment to us that we did the right thing so we we are very happy about that and uh, thanks a lot to all of you we are isolated and it's hard to be alone in this time and me and Johan had plans to travel to the US and the UK last year but we couldn't go but we can promise you that we will try to meet lots of you when it's possible we have plans for going to the US and GenCon and the UK and the Game Expo and other kind of conventions so we get the opportunity to talk to people that are equally important for this game as we are. Thanks. Absolutely. And so just a couple last questions. Do you have any specific upcoming projects that listeners should look out for? Yeah, we have the vinyl project, uh, the LP, uh, Portrayance Regnant, that uh, we did with uh, Exalted Funeral as a publisher and together with Games Omnivorous, Portuguese uh, two guys that are fantastic. That record where we got some great musicians to participate, like Greg Anderson from Sun, is on plans. And we think we will be able to deliver that almost on time at least. And we have the one not delivered Kickstarter that finished in January, I think, uh, which is the new scene, the GM screen and the icon box. And that is on track and will be delivered this summer. And if that is not possible because of a pandemic or other things, we, as always, will um, be very transparent and communicative uh, and, and talk to you about that. Uh, in updates on the Kickstarters. But uh, things are on tracks and I hope everyone stays safe and we are uh, very happy about this uh, monster uh, called Mark Borg, which was just a small little project for me and Johan only a year ago. Yes, and congratulations on all your success with it. It's very deserved. So, all right. And where can our listeners go to find you? Uh, there's a very active Discord community, which can easily be found. It's very, very active. Johan has a Twitter account. I, of course, <laughs> don't use Twitter. And I think that's a good call, actually. But so that's very active as well. We have the tour. Talk Mark Borg group on Facebook and the official Mark Borg group on Facebook. And uh, links to all those uh, different kind of social communities may be found on markborg.com. Perfect. Okay. I'll make sure to have a, a link to markborg.com and a few of those other resources in the show notes. Any parting words for our, our listeners, Pella? The world is going to hell in Mark Borg, and uh, I really hope that you Stay safe and we love you very much and hope that the light will shine on you.
Thank you, Pella, for stopping by the Guild Hall to tell us about your doom metal nightmare of a role-playing game and remind us that no matter what we do, we will not escape the damned truth. Mukborg is a horrible spectacle that all listeners should seek to behold. So please stop by Mukborg.com to learn more about this game, where to get a copy, and our shared inevitable fate. Before we go... We at DDG Pod need to pay our dues. Theme music for our show is the song High Fantasy by the band Gygax. Additional music in this episode was the song Coffin Fits by Court of Beasts. Be sure to check out our show notes for links to both Bandcamp pages for these excellent musical groups. Logo design for our show was done by Elysianist. Additional art for this episode was provided by Zeph Siebler also known as Sundered World DM. You will find links to his website and Instagram page in our show notes as well. Special thanks, as always, to Charlie at Negative Modifier Podcast. And thank you again to all our listeners around the world. If you are enjoying the show, we encourage you to rate and review DDG Pod on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever you are, DDG Pod would like to join Pella in hoping that the light will shine on you. That concludes our fifth episode of Dungeon Designers Guild. So, all you gutter-born scum and fang deserters, we escaped again. But remember, next time, we might not be so lucky. <laughs>